1: from PS Literary Agency be kicking off today's episode with our usual books with hook segment after which we'll go to today's guest. We are so excited for our upcoming virtual retreat on the 24th and 25th of September in which we'll have more than 20 hours of phenomenal jam-packed content which is the equivalent of doing a 10-week creative writing course except with the kind of guest speakers you'd never have access to otherwise. We have such an amazing lineup for you including Including New York Times bestselling authors, three of Reese's book club pick authors, award-winning editors, and writing coaches. You'll learn about point of view, structure, plotting, writing a proposal, outlining your novel, and much, much more. You'll also learn about current market trends and how they shape what agents and editors are actively looking for, as well as how to attract an agent's attention. You'll be taught how to craft page-turning bestsellers, how to overcome rejection, and what to expect from the writing life. Besides all of this, we're helping you discover a community on our retreat's Facebook page, in the breakaway sessions with Carly, Cece, and myself, and in the various social activities we have planned from the Friday night onwards. All the sessions will have Q&As so that you can speak directly with authors and editors at the top of their game. The retreat will be recorded so that if there's a day you can't attend, you'll still be able to catch up immediately afterwards and then you'll get to ask us your burning questions in the post retreat Q&A Zoom on the 3rd of October. Come and engage, interact, learn and grow. We can't wait to see you there. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another Books with Hooks. Now, remember, if you haven't gotten your query in yet, please do submit that on the shitaboutwriting.com. There is one page that's dedicated to that. We are now starting on our June submissions, those submitted in June. So we are a bit behind, but we are trying really hard to catch up. All right, Cece, let's go to your first query letter. Will you read that for us?
2: Dear Cecilia Lira, since discovering your podcast, I have devoured all of the episodes with a notebook in hand. I bow down to your impeccable taste in books, and I also enjoy dark stories about dysfunctional families, female relationships, and feminist issues. Even though you don't represent my genre, I have learned so much from listening to your critiques in the Books with Hooks segment, and I would so love your feedback on my query. I'm seeking representation for my contemporary, young adult novel, Excess Baggage, which is complete at 85,000 words. It's Girl Interrupted meets Telma and Luis, a dual POV coming-of-age story about two girls who meet at a mental health hospital and go on a quest across South America. Aimed at girls aged 14 plus, it would be perfect for fans of Clean by Juno Dawson and Am I Normal Yet by Holly Bourne. Please note that the following query and opening pages include graphic depictions of eating disorders and the full manuscript contains racist incidents and mentions of suicide. After 18-year-old FA is caught purging at her mother's funeral in Nigeria, her estranged father sends her to a mental health hospital in the UK. But Effie doesn't want to talk to the therapist about her dead mum or her absentee dad. And she certainly doesn't believe she has a full-blown eating disorder. The only person she can talk to is her anorexic roommate, Taylor. 17-year-old Taylor doesn't have many IRL friends, and she prefers it that way. But when Effie comes barreling into her life, she wonders if there's a world outside online pro-ANA forums, and constant hospital stays. As Efe encourages Taylor to sneak out of the hospital and resist treatment, Taylor begins to feel like they could have been more than just friends. When Efe finds a photograph of her maternal aunt with the words Rio de Janeiro scrawled on the back, she convinces Taylor to leave the hospital and join her on a trip to Brazil. The trip starts well, but Efe struggles to find her aunt in Rio and becomes swept up with an Afro-Brazilian boy who seems to hold the key to finding her family. At first, Taylor is jealous of Efe's budding romantic relationship and further restricts her food intake as a result. But as Efe uncovers family secrets, she must save Taylor from anorexia and confront her own bulimia before their eating disorder consumes. I am a Nigerian, English, Brazilian, Jewish, Polish, South Londoner, and I first wrote Excess Baggage at 22 years old, drawing on my personal experiences. Now in my 30s, I have developed my craft through various writing courses. In 2020, I was shortlisted for Mentorships with Penguin, Hashtag Right Now, HarperCollins Author Academy, and Spread the Word, London Writers Awards. In 2021, I was accepted onto the Thrive hashtag GrowYourStory mentorship with Hachette, and I have edited my manuscript with redacted editorial director. In addition to this, I regularly share book reviews with over 4,500 followers on my Bookstagram account at Amina's Bookshelf and blog www.aminasbookshelf.com. Kind regards, Amina McKelley.
1: Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, tell us what you thought of that.
2: All right. So, I have a question about the plot. When she finds a photograph of her maternal aunt, did she not know the aunt existed? Like, did she spend all her life under the impression that her mom was an only child? If that's the case, I would clarify that. What is the reason why a picture of her aunt is such a find? I want like unequivocal clarity on this since it's a part of the setup. When it comes to the major dramatic question, I think it's, it feels too internal and the family secret angle too generic. So as FA uncovers family secrets, she must save Taylor from anorexia and confront her own bulimia before their eating disorders consume them. I totally get that it is a huge deal for a person to be going through an eating disorder. Absolutely. It is, however, internal. And the challenge in storytelling is making something that is internal interesting to someone on the outside who has absolutely no connection to you. And I feel like plot is where you find the answer to this challenge. So right now, Taylor's plot seems to be completely in reaction to Efface, right? She doesn't seem to have an arc of her own. And Efface plot, while I can see it's there, I'm not getting enough to know specifically what that is. I would just share whatever that family secret is, not the reveal, but I do mean the nature of the secret, right? Is she Is she going to investigate? I don't know that she was adopted. Did she spend her whole life assuming that her mom married her dad out of love and you know, she maybe found out that that's not the case. Maybe it's something else. I have no idea what the secret is, but I would just like give me more, right? Without giving away the reveal, but the nature of the secret, yes. I also want to say lastly that we read a lot of very impressive author paragraphs on this podcast, but this paragraph is just, just like is amazing. Like amazing, incredible, the most impressive paragraph I've probably ever read, ever, and I'm just, you know, applauding you. You seem amazing and so nice.
1: Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay. Let us know what was in those opening pages as well as your take on them.
2: Content note for eating disorder. So our protagonist, FA is at her mother's funeral. She's biting the inside of her cheek because she really wants to cry, but she can't manage to cry. She doesn't believe it's real her auntie Benumi calls out to her saying it's time to face the crowd of mourners and she ignores her heads to the bathroom induces vomit and in the background her auntie Benumi is calling out to her and finally the auntie swings the door open and catches her throwing up and then she asks, what is this? And Afe tells her to leave her alone. They have an argument about, you know, whether she's being respectful to her auntie. We get a little bit more context that her auntie is actually closer in age to her than to her father. And she's also like a third cousin. It's, it's not really a direct, direct family situation. Bunumi tells FA to clean herself up because her father arrives. When her father arrives, FA watches him from afar. Tunde shows up next to her, they shake hands, I assume Tunde is her brother or half-brother because he refers to Efe's father as dad. And we learn that Tunde had to wait until he finished his exams back at Oxford and Efe feels a stab of jealousy because no one cared about her own studies when they put her on a flight to this country. Tunde joins Benumi and Efe's dad, but Efe stays behind. Efe's looking at pictures of her mom. There's one with another woman that Efe doesn't recognize. She takes the picture and follows everyone to church and tells herself, deep breath, she's going to be out of this country in two days. So that is what happens. I want to say this is really well written, Really polished, excellent writing. I can tell the author put a lot of work into this. I do have two notes. One, I'd like clarity on the significance of Bunumi catching F.A. throwing up. Is this a situation where F.A.'s embarrassment comes from the fact that she was caught in a vulnerable moment? Or does the family know about her eating disorder? For example, if someone were to have caught me throwing up on the day my dad died, they'd assume it was just grief maybe me being too sad to keep food down. No one would assume eating disorder. And I want to know whether the setup of the story already includes the family being concerned about her on this specific matter. Does she think she's getting away with a secret? I also wanted more context on her relationship with the people present. So we have Benoumi, we have Tumde, we have her father. It felt like the the first interaction she's ever had with these people, which obviously is not true. The character has been interacting with them for many, many years. The story starts now, right? And that history should make its way onto the page with razor-sharp subtlety. So for example, when Bunume walks in on Efe, Efe should be thinking to herself, oh my god, she's never respected closed doors. This is just like that day when we were younger and she would just storm into my room. Right? Because again, we connect the present with things that happened in the past. With Toonday, after she found out that he got to finish his studies at Oxford, his final exams at Oxford, would FA think to herself, surprise, surprise, he's always been the favorite. Or maybe she would think to herself, you know, I didn't expect him to rub in the fact that he's the favorite today of all days. Um, or maybe she wouldn't think any of that. Maybe she would think with compassion. Um, with her father, when was the last time she saw her father? Um, clearly she lives someplace else. And I wanted more context on that. Um, her, her mom dying. Was it sudden? Did it happen? Was it a slow illness? Um, I know it was unexpected, but is it because she had her hopes up that she would recover? Or is it because it was like a heart attack that happened out of the blue? That's the sort of thing that's missing for me. And I really wanted that on the pages.
1: Great, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly,
0: let's go to the next query letter. Miss Waters. When I heard Bianca say we could resubmit, I jumped. I may not be Steinbeck, but I'll go down trying. I do understand, however, if you've got other first-time submitters who might benefit more, I almost feel piggy asking you for help again. I'm submitting to Carly because I believe my protagonist is a fit for you, plus I admire the heck out of someone who can do what you do and still find time to do triathlons. I'm a retired marathoner who can't swim to save my life, and I would fall off my bike if someone got too close. I've listened to the podcast since it first came out and listened to you read my query a year ago. Since then, I've changed my opening too many times to count, including one version submitted to Bianca and the service she offered to review the first 2,500 words. I've received feedback from another group of beta readers and continue to listen and learn weekly to the podcast. The Roof Above is women's fiction. 90,000 words, single POV, and set during the early years of the War on Terror, 2001 to 2006. Kelly McGowan, from a dysfunctional family in New Hampshire, realizes her relationship with her fiancé Matt has changed after something happened between his West Point graduation and their arrival at his first Army assignment in Georgia. When Matt returns from a deployment, he finally confirms what he thought might be true and comes clean to his fiancé. Kelly, devastated and angry, moves to her aunt's house on the Florida plan handle to regroup, only to be walloped with another whammy, a catastrophic hurricane. Kelly goes on a quest to build her own foundation for the future, regaining her independence and reopening the door to love, seeking the contentment that only comes with finding where you truly belong. The roof above is Laura Trentum's The Military Wife meets Debbie MacOmer's Cottage by the Sea. The roof above parallels W.E. Griffin's The Lieutenants, but from the spouse's point of view in today's army of back-to-back deployments. An Army veteran and retired Army spouse, I'm the mother of two active-duty Army officers who have deployed too many times. I admire and am humbled by the strength of these families who've inspired me to tell this story. My memoir about my experiences in the second class of women at West Point, tough as nails, one woman's journey through West Point, was published by Hellgate Press in 2009. I'm a member of Women's Fiction Writers Association. I've written technical proposals, written numerous articles for local publications, and a humor column for my community magazine. I live with my husband full time in Mexico Beach, Florida, a tiny town that was decimated by a Category Five hurricane in 2018. We rebuilt run a free bed and breakfast for our four adult children, 10 grandchildren and friends who seem to multiply when the sun is out. Thank you for your time and consideration and feedback, Gail Dwyer. Thanks, Carly. The last bit made me laugh. Okay, so what was your take on the query letter? I I agree. I, I thought the book ending was so cute. I smiled on the first paragraph. I chuckled at the last paragraph. There's just a lot of life and feeling and just humanity in these pages. So we appreciate our, our loyal listeners. Thank you so much. And um, I don't know how I find time to do triathlons either. And yet here I am. <laughs> okay. So I'm gonna get right to the point here. So the title, I don't know if I love it. I don't think, I don't know if it's doing enough for me. I don't hate it, but it's just kind of a, I'm gonna give it a B, a B, that's what I'm gonna give it. I think i think we can do better on that title. Okay, so now I wanna talk about our our middle paragraph here. So whenever we have a query letter that's really based around a secret, it's very challenging for the reader because we feel left out of the joke. We feel left out of the secret. If this entire premise is based around the secret and we can't reveal the secret in the query letter, it's tough because you just it's its a lot of vagueness, right? It's, you know, he finally confirms what he thought might be true and comes clean to his fiance. And then we never learn. I don't think what the secret is here. So it seems like everybody in the book knows the secret except the reader. And I just need a little bit more investment here, I think, to figure out why the stakes of this secret matter, because she seems to be fine. She's devastated and angry. But like, what are the stakes of this secret? And we're building this whole premise around this kind of inciting incident. So I'm just worried all the plot is behind us mostly, but I love that we have this Hurricane, right? Because that's a very present you know, rich setting kind of moment. So it does seem like there's a lot more plot to come, which I love, but it does seem very internal. There's a lot of internal stuff here, you know, regaining her independence, reopening the world to love. But we never, as the reader, we never really understand what happened with her love life to begin with. So I'm just lacking a little bit of personal investment here just because I'm just not fully understanding the stakes of all of the the secrets. And that's a little bit troubling for me. I think the comps are good. There's a lot of them. Probably don't need them all. But there is a real market, you know, for, for this type of book. As you say, you know, you're humbled by the strength of these families have inspired to tell me these tell these stories. Like, yeah, there's a real market here. And there are a lot of families that, that go through these army marriages and all of this sort of stuff. So it's super real, super real. And it's really great for everybody to be seen. And so I, I do think there's a real market for this. I think the author bio is good, but you kind of have two author bio paragraphs between the army bit. And then the memoir bit. So you might want to find a way to condense that as well. So, so yeah, I think, I think we're close here. I don't think we're too far away from the mark, but I'm just a little bit concerned about, you know, the secret and building everything on a secret when the reader just isn't really in on the joke. Great,
1: Carly. Okay. Let's talk about those opening pages. What was in them? What's your
0: take on them? So we start May. The year is 2003. We are in West Point, New York. So we have our main character. She is on the phone with her father and then she's like kind of late and she has to get herself together. So she's rushing. She, she says her, her husband or fiance told her to dress comfortably for walking. So she's walking between the hotel and this destination where she's trying to get and there's hordes of people. We kind of put two and two together that she's on her way to the graduation ceremony for Matt So she's like rushing, rushing. She seems like she's late for this event. She's like trying to kind of dart and weave through the crowd. And she kind of gets close to this old man and she bumps him and has this little um, kind of exchange with this old man who's basically like lightheartedly saying, like, slow down, you know, it'll wait. And they have this kind of nice moment of interaction. And then she's hustling to where she needs to be. And then there's a bit of a a scene break, and then we're going to the day before Matt's graduation. So it seems like, again, we're going back a day, and then we have some information about Matt and his family, his ex-girlfriend, and then when this couple started dating and getting to know the family. And that's where it ends. Okay. And what did you think? All right. So overall, the first paragraph here, there's a lot of I in in this opening line. I'll read it to you. I shouldn't have picked up the phone in the hotel room, but I did. And it was my father and I was worried about him. So we talked until I saw the time and panicked and told him I had to go. And that's our first line. That was just a lot of eyes for me. And it just felt like you're trying to cram a lot of information in there. And I just I just stumbled over that a little bit. So I don't know if we can find a way to smooth that out. But clearly it's first person. (laughs) We're hammered with that. But let's just find a way to, to smooth that out a little bit. Overall, it kind of reminds me of the query letter where I feel like we're hiding a lot from the reader. So the next line is, I scrambled out of the room, guilt-ridden about cutting my father short, agitated about being late, not the emotional state I was going for the first time I met my fiance's parents. They already didn't like me. So firstly, we have like no idea why she's guilt-ridden about the dad and then you know, we know that the fiance's parents don't like her. So uh, yeah, this is just reminding me a bit of the query letter where it's like, I'm not in on the joke. I'm not in on the secrets. And I just want, I want you to give me something (laughs) to work with, to kind of be excited about the propulsiveness here. I really, really liked the interaction between our character and the old man. I just thought that was really sweet. You know, he says, slow down, Missy, he'll wait. And then she says, I'm sorry. And then, you know, they're kind of talking about, the relationship between the guys says, I'm not worried about him, it's his parents. And then he goes, you're not marrying them, right? And I just love that little interaction. So well done. Well done on the dialogue. As you know, if you're a podcast listener, I'm I'm really tough on dialogue. And I, I thought you did really well there. The next section, I would just honestly, I would just cut. It's just a lot of telling, you know, we're talking about, you know, Sarah, and then Matt, and then her fiance, Jake, and we're just learning about all these other people that aren't As central, I don't think to the plot here, and I would really just want to spend the time getting to know our main character. You know, what are her individual stakes? You know, what are what are her concerns, her secrets? I just felt like we went into this flashback moment way too soon, and then it 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 follows that kind of whole section of just a lot of telling. So yeah, I, I would revisit that for sure. But I think the strengths here are this little clippy bit of dialogue, and and I think you have the ability to reveal a little bit more in terms of the secrets for us. Great, Carly. Thank you.
1: All right, Cece, last query letter. Will you read that for us?
2: Dear Cece, every Monday and Thursday morning, I start playing the newest episode of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing before my feet even hit the floor. Thank you to you, Carly and Bianca, for all that you do. I'm querying you because of your interest in novels about dysfunctional families with morally ambiguous protagonists. The Back Forty explores what happens when a podcast invades a tiny town in rural Arkansas to investigate a murder that everyone thought was solved decades earlier. This 73,000-word mystery delves into themes similar to Razorblade Tears and will appeal to fans of The Little Friend by Donna Tartt and the atmospheric literary mysteries of Tana French. The Back Forty is a dual timeline, dual point of view novel that follows the Mason family from Thorn Tree, Arkansas. Evelyn's daughter, Tracy, is murdered a few months after she moves out of Evelyn's house with her infant daughter. Blinded by a need for vengeance and the fear that rumors about Tracy's love life and the tragic crime will erase the town's memory of her daughter, Evelyn pursues the man she and everyone else believes is guilty. Twenty-three years later, Evelyn's granddaughter, Shell, is still living with her. Shell desperately wants to leave Thorntree, but she feels paralyzed by familial obligation and she has first-hand knowledge of how scary the outside world can be. Shell realizes just how sheltered she has always been when the producers of a podcast about cold cases descend on the rural area and Shell must decide whether to team up with the outsiders to solve her mother's murder or stick by the family she feels so grateful to but that has conspired to keep her ignorant of her own past for the last couple of years i have been taking creative writing classes from several organizations including redacted when i'm not writing i'm working as a lawyer in redacted or spending my time with my dog cookie i grew up in rural arkansas on my grandparents goat farm I have included the first five pages of the Back 40 for your consideration. Thank you very much for your time. Best redacted. P.S. Content warnings for the manuscript are allusions to domestic violence and murder. There is also threatened violence to a possum in the first two pages.
1: Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, so what did you think?
2: I want to say that I wish you could see the smile on my face when you mentioned that you start playing it before you even get out of bed. Like, it's surreal to me that we have these listeners, and I'm so grateful and so happy. Also, very cool hook. What happens when a podcast invades a tiny town in rural Arkansas to investigate a murder that everyone thought was solved decades earlier? incredibly cool i am immediately curious this is how you write hooks people to anyone listening this is a very cool hook so question about the plot evelyn pursues the man she and everyone else believes is guilty is evelyn like a detective in the investigation or is this like a formal pursuit that verb pursues it's confusing to me because it suggests she has an active role in the matter and I'm not sure I understand like what that means. i get that in a small town, especially maybe the angle is that she can be involved without having any official capacity, but I would just like more clarity. The part that's missing to me is what makes everyone realize that the man who I assume was sentenced to prison isn't actually guilty. Like did new evidence resurface? Cause I don't, like, I'm not getting that information. And so I don't understand what what triggered the podcast to go to the town to to investigate. And as a big picture note and I'm okay not knowing this in the query letter but just so you know it's not clear. I'm not super clear on the timelines and POV situation. You tell me dual timeline, dual POV, but is it Evelyn in the past and Shell in the present or like maybe Evelyn in the past and present as well as Shell like that that is something that I wasn't clear on. So yeah, I you know what what exactly did did Shell uncover? Did she uncover that her mom was murdered or or something else because there is a line that says people have conspired to keep her ignorant of her own past and i just i want to know what that means specifically since that's the setup i also loved the mention of your dog cookie and thank you so much for the content note that is so appreciated
1: wonderful cc thank you all right so will you tell us what was in those opening pages and your take on them
2: The year is 2017. Our protagonist, Shell, is watching Granny threaten a possum with a metal pipe, a sight that does not surprise her, but does make her reconsider telling Granny that she wants to move out. And we find out that Shell has been taking money from a stash of bills that the family has, a stash that she contributes to as well, for the past six months. And so when Auntie Rose arrives, Shell realizes that she had forgotten that it was Decoration Day. And essentially, Decoration Day is something that we learned through inner life. Granny lost most of her family, like her parents, her sisters, or most of her sisters, her daughter, her mom. Then it's the day where they make beautiful flower arrangements to take to the cemetery. Granny fills Shell in that Mr. Freeman has cancer. We understand that Shell knows Mr. Freeman as a customer in her job. Like, he seemed to be fine last time Shell saw him. Granny and Aunt Rose are making the flower arrangements and Charlotte does not expect to help because that's not her role. Usually Granny tells her that she doesn't do it right, but then Granny does tell her that she's old enough. And so when she does make her flower arrangement, she takes a long time to make sure it's really beautiful because she really wants her mom's flowers to be gorgeous. And Auntie Rose compliments her on the arrangement many times, but Granny does not. And Shell resolves that she will tell Granny that she's moving out tomorrow because today is not the day. And then we get one page of Evelyn's point of view in 1994. She's arriving home with grocery bags that she managed to buy because she scraped money together, her last two checks bound. So the store is no longer accepting her checks. And she's wondering like where her daughter is. And she drops the bag. That's when Tracy shows up with baby Shell on her arms. And Evelyn tells her to put shoes on and and help her. So that is what happens. My notes. So my big picture note is I just really wanted more emotionality and more interiority. How does Shell feel about taking the money? When a character is doing something like that, something sneaky, I think it's really important to show how she's framing this to herself. Does she feel brave? Does she feel guilty? A little bit of both? Neither. Does she suspect that Granny knows and is turning a blind eye? Or does she think she's outsmarting Granny? The framing of her actions is something that only inner life can tell us in a book and it is essential. How does Shell feel about her grandmother not complimenting her? Does she think that Auntie Rose is complimenting her because she assumes that Shell is insecure? If so, does she resent this assumption or is she grateful for the compliments because it's true? She is insecure. The Mr. Freeman getting cancer angle. I don't like, I think it's there so that Shell can make the connection to Papa because she does think about Papa at the moment, but the line doesn't tell me anything. The line is, you know, she remembers Papa that, That's basically it and I think that she would remember it with specifics. She would see his face in the hospital bed or something that's a little bit more sharp. That's what I wanted. The scene is is framed around in her life, as most scenes are. And I love that. And I love that Shell wants to summon the courage to tell Granny that she's going to move out. But right now, that desire is generic. Like, what does she picture when she thinks about moving out? Late night gossiping with her best friend because they're getting a place together? Finally enjoying the freedom she's always craved? what scares her about it and what does she think granny's reaction is going to be would for example silence terrify her more than an outburst when was the last time she had to break bad news to granny because she would be creating a parallel between that time and this time now the time that she's anticipating with so much dread so essentially what i wanted is more emotionality more inner life in a very directed sharp way And I hope that these guiding questions will inspire you to weave in these elements in a way that really ups the tension and reveals character. Just remember, your job is not to answer every single one of the questions that I wrote in the margins because that would make it exhausting, right? These questions are to guide you and for you to feel like, oh, maybe I'll answer this one because that will give the, the reader relevant access to her psyche. Or maybe I won't answer this one because this one involves a reveal that I want to come later. That is your job as a storyteller. I'm just here to hopefully offer useful guidance.
1: Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Carly and Cece both, thank you so much. That ends today's Books with Hook segment. Remember that if you do want to submit to it, go to the website, theshitaboutwriting.com. There is a page there in which you can submit your work and we will try to get to it as soon as possible. Right, let's go to today's guest. Molly novel, The Witches of Moonshine Manor, releases on the 23rd of August, and I'm super excited to be doing a few tour stops over August to November in order to promote it. I'll be visiting Atlanta, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Milwaukee and Boston, as well as doing a few events in and around Toronto. If you live near any of these cities, I'd love to get to meet you at one of the events. Please check my tour schedule on Bianca
0: The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys that's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone. For 50% off, this is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD15 P O at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course.
1: Hi, everyone. Today's guest is an extra special one. She's the author of the award winning New York Times best selling Lady Julia Gray series, as well as the USA Today best selling and Edgar Award nominated Veronica Speedwell mysteries and several standalone works. It's my pleasure to welcome Deanna Rayborn. Deanna, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted.
1: I am so excited to chat about this book. So my book that has just come out, The Witches of Moonshine Manor, is about six octogenarian witches who band together to take down the patriarchy. So when I got a copy of Killers of a Certain Age, I was squealing with excitement. So for our listeners, I just want to give you a bit of an overview of the book. So here we go. Billy, Mary Alice, Helen, and Natalie have worked for an elite network of assassins for 40 years and are now looking forward to enjoying their retirement. When the foursome is sent on an all expenses paid cruise as a thank you for their years of service, they realize that this time they are the targets. To get out alive, the women must turn against their employer, relying on their years of experience and their strong bonds with each other for survival they're about to show what it really means to be a woman and a killer of a certain age so Deanna I always am fascinated by the etymology of ideas where do they come from how do they strike and how do we know they're gold as opposed to all the other ideas that we as writers get could you take us through that a bit for this
3: particular book Yeah, I mean, this book was a huge departure for me. I've got, I think, something like 18 books in print, and they're all set in the 19th century or the 1920s. So this was a good 100 years out of my comfort zone. It actually started when my editor picked up the phone one day and said, hey, we were all kicking around an idea in the office, we would love to see a book about really badass older women. And your name was the one name that everybody said, Hey, she's the one who's got to write this book. And would you be interested? And I said, Yes, absolutely. Let me go off and have a think about it. And what I want them to be because they gave me carte blanche. They said, literally, whatever you want to write, you're good to go. So I went off and I had to think and I came back and I said, Okay, I I know what I want them to be. I want them to be Assassins. I want them to be literal killers. And I want to write a contemporary. And both of those things, I think, shocked the bejesus out of them. And they were very, very brave about it. And they let me do it. They, I I got a couple of the, are you absolutely sure you want to write a contemporary comments? (laughs) Because, well, I mean, it's just, it's a cat of a very different color when you're accustomed to writing historical. But it was the thing that scared me the most. So it was the thing I wanted to do the most. And so I said, yeah, if I'm ever going to do this, this is the time. So I kind of plunged ahead and I had an extremely gifted and very patient editor who kind of shepherded the process through. And it was a good three years from start to finish because I was writing Veronica books in between drafts of this book. And as soon as I realized what I wanted them to do, then that leads to a lot of really natural questions. Because when you've got characters who who literally kill people for a living, what's the justification for that? Where do you find an entry point where the average reader can pick up the book and say, not necessarily that you find them likable or even relatable, but that you want to know their story? that you're interested in them and you want to see where it's going to go. And so that led to, okay, so why are they doing this? How is it organized? Who are they doing it for? And each one of those answers led to a fresh question. And so that's how I ended up developing them as a quartet of assassins who work for an organization that started off by their mandate when they first formed was to go hunt Nazis. And so they've kind of evolved over the years as we've gotten more assorted bad dudes. They kill other folks. But at the end of the day, it's always, well, we're going to kill people who need killing, which of course is highly subjective, but they're not the ones who choose who gets killed. That's the organization. So I find for me and my mysteries start the same way that as soon as you figure out who you want to write about or the hook that you want to write about, the one little nugget of truth in that book, everything else comes from just a continual series of asking yourself questions. Who would do this? Why would they do this? How do they feel about doing this? And then that just kind of leads you down the path.
1: Yeah, and I I loved this take on serial killers and they all do it for very different reasons. They are pretty much serial killers, but they're assassins. So they're doing it professionally. It depends on how you look at it, but all of them feel very differently about it. Some are like, this is just a job. We are doing good work in the world. Others are sort of more ambivalent about it in terms of questioning the morals. And I love seeing these kinds of female characters because I'm so sick of hearing in publishing, oh, this female character wasn't likable enough. She wasn't vulnerable enough. And we don't have this problem with male characters. So it drives me insane when we're hearing that woman... Characters have to be likable and readers really have to like them. And I agree with you. They just have to be on board with them and they have to go, okay, I'm kind of rooting for them regardless and I'm really interested to see where the story goes. Just backtracking to what you said earlier, when you decided it needed to be contemporary, was there a reason beyond challenging yourself that you decided it had to be contemporary? Or when you looked at it, did you say, I needed to use more modern day techniques of killing. I want them to have access to cell phones and gadgetry that they wouldn't have available then. Was was it more than just challenging yourself? Because I think choosing setting and time period is something we don't discuss enough on the podcast because any story could essentially take place at any time. So why do we choose the time and the setting that we do?
3: Well, in this case, it absolutely had to be contemporary for me because Like you said, I wanted that challenge. I wanted to do something I hadn't done before. I My business card is actually a Victorian circus acrobat perched on a high wire because I love that feeling of challenging myself and scaring myself and, ooh, can I do this? Can I get across this safely? And that when you're teetering over the abyss and you know there's no net, it's wonderfully terrifying. And I love that feeling when I'm writing. The idea of them using modern technology That's actually kind of the crux of the matter for them throughout this book is that they can't use a lot of what they would. Under ordinary circumstances, they would have access to a ton of resources kind of the equivalent of James Bond's Q, they would have the gadgetry, and they would have the cool, interesting weapons, and they would have somebody doing a deep dive and all of the, the information that they need. And because of the fact that they're working outside the purview of their employer on this one, they're thrown back only on their own resources and experience. And so their kills are the vast majority of the time, either barehanded or something that you'd find in a grocery store. It really isn't the idea that they have to rely on modern technology for a lot of this. The idea was that they were going to rely on experience and gut instinct and their own kind of finely honed assassin skills that really come down to people skills. And and in our society, there are a lot of things that tend to be coded female, being observant, being a little under the radar having a good intuition about people. Those are things that women tend to have to do more of in society, because that's what's expected. I'm sure you've seen the statistic that goes around about how if women are talking in a corporate meeting, I think it's something like less than 25% of the time they're expected, they're perceived as speaking more than 50% of the time because of the fact that people are used to women being quieter. Women, women are supposed to be a little bit, a little less noticeable, a little less intrusive as they move throughout the world. And that's something that these four women, because they're 60, are able to, to exploit. Uh, My God, it's a superpower that they can just kind of blend into the wallpaper because people aren't looking to them as Something that they should be afraid of. And so that played into it as well. There are some plots and there are some situations that don't translate very, very well to our time because of the fact that a single cell phone call would solve the entire thing. It would summon help, right? Or a quick Google search would tell you everything you needed to know. And so. There's a certain comfort level when you're writing about people who are very similar to your own age, living in a time that's very similar to yours. There's a default to what are my pop culture references. I'm not quite as old as these assassins. I'm 54. So I'm about a half a generation removed. But I had cousins that age. I knew what music they were listening to when they were teenagers. I knew you know, what television shows they watched. And so for me, it was a a wonderful time to kind of put some Credence Clearwater and and Scarlet Rivera on my playlist and go back to my childhood and channel all of that when I'm putting together these women and what their lives would have been like at the time they were recruited. Because all of them started the job of being an assassin when they were about 20 years old, kind of at this dangerously formative age, where some of them were very idealistic about why they were going into it. And some of them were much more pragmatic about it.
1: Can we chat a bit about the structure? So you have a dual timeline narrative happening. It's these women in modern day as they're dealing with this crisis, and then we keep going back into the past as we see some of them get recruited, and we see the jobs that they did in the past and things like that. So how did you decide on that particular structure, and how did you balance out the past Timeline with the present timeline in order to keep the present story moving forward at such an awesome pace?
3: Well, the first thing I did because I've never done this before is I went to writer friends of mine who have done it before and kind of threw myself on their mercy and sent them panic text messages saying, Actually, I even called them, What do I do? Help me. And they were lovely. And I ended up not using their advice at all because the two that I talked to approach it completely differently from each other. One of them, just alternates her timelines and writes a scene present day. And then the next day she'll write a scene in the past. Another one writes the entire timeline in the present, and then she'll go and write the entire timeline that she's going to use in the past. And neither of those ended up working for me. Really, I just kind of, when I would get to a point with the contemporary narrative that I just, for whatever reason, needed a break from it or felt a little bit at sea, I would sit down and write one of the flashback scenes. The flashback scenes all serve a purpose. They're not there just for my own pleasure, although they were a joy to write. I ended up cutting only one of them that didn't fit in. Everything else fit in perfectly with what I was trying to do, but I just couldn't crack where to put them and how to divide it up. And as I worked through each draft of the book, I would tinker with where they went and why they went those places. And I would tinker with how long they were because one of them that ended up on the cutting room floor was probably about 40 pages long. It just went on way, way too long. It was great for me. It helped me understand what that scene was supposed to be so I could cut it to the bone and really save the parts that were absolutely necessary. That's the thing that my first Veronica Speedwell editor told me is we were working on, uh, the second book in the series and or I'm sorry, it was the first book in the series. And she said, you have a chunk right here. That's about 15 pages long. It's great. I love it, but you need to take it out. And I said, Oh my God, why? And she said, because you wrote it for you and you needed to write it because you needed to understand it was backstory stuff. And she said, you needed to know where these characters came from. And she said, but the reader doesn't need this in a chunk and they don't need it here. She said, dole it out to them in little pieces here and there. She said, you know you want this to be a series. Give them little little crumbs along the way, and you can break up this one section that you've got over five, six, seven books, which is exactly what I ended up doing because it was kind of this dense wall of backstory that I ran into. And I had the same problem when I was writing this, but I remembered that piece of advice. And so I went back and kind of tinkered with the scenes again to figure out where they should go. And I wanted a very strong action scene to open everything. And I ended up going with one of the flashback scenes for that. And it's a very pivotal flashback scene because it's the first one where the four of them work together. It's the first time they've come out of training and everything goes wrong. But the point of that scene is that they figure out who's their natural leader, how they're going to work together they ultimately make it work, even though it's a shit show, they kind of just band together and and they realize, hey, resources and intuition and thinking on the fly, man, that's what we've got. And that's what we're going to do. Because in any line of business, shit's going to go wrong. But when lives are literally at stake, you've got to do a really good job of thinking on your feet. And that's what they do. So I wanted that scene at the beginning, the rest of the scenes, I don't advocate this. I'm actually a really, really lazy writer. I sit down at my computer for maybe an hour, hour and a half at a stretch when I'm working on a draft. And that will be five, six days a week. I type very, very fast. So when I sit down for that time, I'm writing flat out. But I don't recommend, like, I know there are writers who will sit there and they will be glued to the keyboard for three weeks straight. And they just, they're all cramped up and they barely surface for air or... I'm not like that, except I was when I put this book together at the very end. I was coming up against my deadline and I suddenly realized everything clicked into place for no good reason other than I had spent so much time with this that I finally understood what the structure needed to be and where each of these flashback scenes needed to come in. And it just hit me one morning. I needed each of these flashback scenes to be set right before the contemporary scene that they would be referencing, and that they needed to be paralleled together, which meant that four days before the book was due, I had to tear it apart. And so for 96 hours straight, I did not change clothes. I woke up, I wrote, I ate, I fell into bed. And that's literally, I was feral. It was horrifying. Thank God no one else was home. My husband was on a business trip. The dogs were disgusted. (laughs) Um, but I, it's literally, it's the only way I could get it done on time. And I do, I take my deadlines extremely seriously out of 18, 19 books. I have literally asked for a deadline extension one time. And that was to get 10 days. I hit my deadlines and I knew that this was our drop dead deadline because there were, we had no extra time on this because we had to go into production. And so it was either, kind of flay myself alive, making this work or turn it in and know that it wasn't where I wanted it to be. And there was, th- that was a no brainer. I was going to tear it apart and I was going to stitch it back together and Franken book it in time to get it turned in. And that's exactly what happened. And my editor called me, I turned it in and she called me on a Friday afternoon at 530 and editors do not pick up the phone on Friday afternoons at 530. So I knew, and she, and that's when she said, "You you did it. This is it. And I burst into happy tears and and finally took a shower.
1: (laughs) That's that's amazing. And I love how when those puzzle pieces finally fall together and that it came so late and you were still able to make that work is amazing. But again, I tell people on the podcast and my creative writing students, the only way out is through. You're only going to figure out where the puzzle pieces need to go once you've gone through everything, once you've realized what doesn't work. That's the only way to get to what does work. Now, something else I want to ask you as well, Deanna, in terms of writing for characters who are really quite similar is a huge challenge. This is something I struggled with in my novel with the six women who were all in their 80s. And you had it here as well. These women are all pretty much the same age. They're doing the same job. So how the heck do you sit down and differentiate them so that when the readers are reading this, they know who Billy is, who Mary Alice is, who Helen is, who Natalie is? So they're not at any point confused as to which character they're dealing with. How did you approach characterization?
3: We kind of culturally have... Plenty of models for writing a quartet of women, and which I've never done before that was another thing that was very far out of my comfort zone because usually I write a very strong central female character I'll write a male who there's usually a love interest going on there that's secondary to the mystery, and then I write an assortment of either family or found family who are secondary characters who have all of our interesting quirks and fidgets. In this case, I needed these four characters to be. Equally important, although Billy takes a a leadership role and she is kind of the lens through which we see all of the contemporary events. I needed to make it clear that Billy does step up and take the leadership role, but she is not the boss of them. It's a very egalitarian quartet and they all have distinctly different personalities. So for me, it was a matter of, I actually looked at and broke down, okay, little women, golden girls, sex in the city, you've got quartets of women. How does that play out? How do you devise these distinct personalities? And it's funny how often you see that within a group of that size, you'll have a nurturer, you'll have a wild child, you'll have the person who kind of just their give a shitter is broken, and they they do what needs to be done. And so when you think of them in in these kind of archetypal roles, it's much easier then to figure out oh it clicks. Natalie's my wild child. Great. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like for somebody in her job? And so I just went back to the idea of archetypes and started from that and then proceeded forward. And the idea that Mary Alice is a bit of a nurturer in her way. She's the only one who is currently married. She has a very stable home life. She is kind of this gorgeous blonde bombshell who's voluptuous and and has this kind of warm, curvy, lovely energy. And so when I knew I had that, I wanted the foil to that, which was bringing in her wife. And so we got a secondary character coming in that would kind of show up and demonstrate for us what does is, what is Mary Alice look like when she's not off killing people? Who is she here? Because that would show her vulnerability. That would show her doing something not nearly as well you know, she she's not nearly as good at being a wife as she is being an assassin. And then we've got one of our characters is kind of going, emerging from this cocoon of grief, because she's been widowed. And then Natalie has left a string of divorced husbands behind her. And just because she's very much got this butterfly energy of oh, this looks great. Oh, you know, not so much. Let me reinvent myself. And so that's what she keeps doing. And so they do have very, very different things that motivate them and keep them going inside or outside of the profession. And there are little hints as to why each one of them got into the job and what has kind of sustained them over 40 years.
1: Yeah. And for our listeners, if you look at the Golden Girls or Sex in the City, in a TV show, it's much easier to differentiate who the different characters mm-hmm. are because you have visuals. You Absolutely. just look at them There the hell they are. It's so much harder in writing. So for those of you who are writing sort of ensemble casts, this is an amazing book to take a look at to see how Deanna did it. Our time is almost up. I have so many more questions, but something (laughs) that I wanted to ask is your characters kill off people in really wildly inventive ways. There's There was a scene with nicotine, which I absolutely love. So are you going to get arrested one day because of your Google history in terms of research or how did this come about?
3: Oh my God. I'm pretty sure my Google history already had me on a watch list. Like at the beginning of the internet, I'm sure this has been a thing. This is where I get to issue the disclaimer. Please don't attempt any of these at home because I'm pretty sure a couple of them will work. So don't do it. Take no chances. These were murders for fun. They need to stay on the page. Yeah, I did because of the fact that our assassins are kind of thrown back on their resources they're drawing a little bit on ways that they've killed people in the past but they're also kind of updating those methods as they go and using whatever they can find at hand and we do unfortunately live in households that have a lot of really toxic things around there are a couple of things that i used in the book that people might be surprised at finding are as dangerous as they are and Is it wrong to say I had a lot of fun figuring this stuff out? Because I really did. Um, I
1: I could see that. It comes across on the page. I was delighted with a ton of it. So I could see you were enjoying it.
3: I did. I absolutely did. Because plotting a fictitious murder is actually, I I think it's probably psychologically very healthy because you you can work out all of your aggression on the page and nobody actually has to die. And whatever rage you're feeling, you can channel it in a much more constructive way. All of our victims had it coming one way or another <laughs> it's very much a situation where for these four women it's killer be killed and so they are just taking the initiative to look out for themselves so
1: and for our listeners as well, there are a ton of interesting settings. The book takes place all over the place. We have it on a cruise ship. We have it in Paris. They, they travel a lot. And so that was another masterclass in how to keep your characters moving and how to use setting really as an amazing backdrop to the story central conflict as well. Deanna, thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful chatting with you. For our listeners, Get Killers of a Certain Age, we will link to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page so you can support an indie publisher and the podcast at the same time. And
3: Deanna, we hope to have you back for the next one. Absolutely, my pleasure. I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me.
1: And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.